0: So Colossians chapter three. And over the last couple of weeks, we as a group of people have been meditating on God's word, meditating on this letter written to a church, a young church, similar to us, probably in a lot of ways. And this guy by the name of Paul, a wise apostle, a follower of Jesus, a teacher, and a church starter, a church planter, writes these words and he shares them with this church. And, and he even encourages at the end of this book to, to share these words in this letter to other churches as well as getting a hold of other letters that he wrote to encourage and instruct other churches and, and read them together as well. And so we want to be faithful to that. We want to reflect on that. And, and as we really set in place a, a kind of a DNA and a structure uh, and, and a sense of identity in a young church like us, we really want to be diligent in, in digging into God's Word and understanding what it is that the first Christians believed and hopefully be as unoriginal as possible as we follow in those footsteps. That we would simply believe that which the first Christians believed and be loyal to that above all else. Because in the end, that tends to be, I think, the recurring theme in this particular book. That that these people believed that Jesus had done something for them. That Jesus came and He did something. He accomplished something. and, And they made very much of who Jesus was and what He had done for them. But in addition to that, they began to kind of try to reconcile that with what they believed and what they knew before in their previous life. And so people who had were polytheistic and believed in multiple gods, and they were pagan or Gentile. They started to bring some of their religious practices into the church. And there were even others that weren't polytheistic or pagan or Gentile, but they were Jewish. they were highly religious, and they brought in those same practices as well. And Paul writes over and over and agi- over and over again in this particular book, a word of warning, a warning, a word of encouragement to say, "Hey, look, these religious practices are not evil in and of themselves, but they are just a shadow. they are not the light." And so what you do is important, but it is never, ever as important as what Jesus has done. And so our focus ought to always be on what Jesus has accomplished for us above anything that we might accomplish in this life. And even in our religious practices, traditions in and of themselves are not evil, they're not bad. But if they become our focus more than the thing that they ultimately represent, if they become the focus of our energy and attention more than that which they symbolize, then they become something that's actually a distraction and a detriment, and in fact, something that's destructive to the good news of what Jesus has done. And so he says over and over and over again, here look, Jesus is it. Jesus is the firstborn. He's it. He's the firstborn son, so he is the authority of the Father. The authority over all creation, but he even has authority over death because he's the firstborn of the dead. And he is the new creation in which God is bringing new life to the world. And all that we want to know about God, we see very clearly in Jesus. So that if Anyone ever has a question about who God is and what He looks like, we know that there is an answer in Jesus Christ. There is no mystery that is not ultimately revealed to us and brought clear to us in Jesus Christ. All of them, all the mysteries of the ages are answered for us in Jesus, sufficiently, completely. And even if we find ourselves wanting more, like, well, what's, then what do I do with this? Ha- what are the questions that I have for this? All of those things revolve around the mysteries that have been re- revealed in Jesus Christ, such that the fullness of God, all of God's power to redeem, all of God's power to bring justice, to bring wrath, and to show mercy are shown to us in Jesus Christ. And because of that, because of this miraculous thing that God has done for us in Jesus, He has united us with Him. And all that which is true about Jesus by some miracle of faith is now true about us. And now the perfect, blameless, righteous Son of God has united us to Him such that when God looks at us, miraculously, we are also blameless, righteous, perfect. Not because of that which we have done, but because of that which Jesus has done. And then all that which is true about us, that we are rebellious, that we are broken, that we're prone to wander, that we're likely to do what we want rather than what God wants. All of that guilt, all of the punishment and wrath that we deserve for running away from God has by His mercy been put on Jesus. So that not only that which is true about Jesus and His holiness and perfection is now true about us, but also that which is true about us and the wrath and the mercy that we do not deserve has been thrown upon Jesus so that he suffers in our place. He's a king that's seated at the right hand of God, and he's a special king. He's not a king that sends people to die for his kingdom. He's the kind of king that lays down his own life for his own kingdom. So we set our minds and our thoughts and our hearts on that which is above. The kingdom that Jesus represents, the kingdom that God is bringing to us in full reality sufficiently in Jesus. So let's read about that in verse 1. Colossians chapter 3 together. So if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, So for the next bit of time together, let's walk through this text. Hopefully let's explain some of the parts and maybe illustrate some ways in which they apply to us. Because I think what you'll find is two main things here, two hopefully nuggets that we take away. And that is that we put off that which is broken and sinful by digging deeper into our sin and applying the Gospel at even the deepest level. But then, the second thing, we dress accordingly. All right, so we, having known what Jesus has done for us and how He's united us with Him in a miraculous fashion, we put off that which is disgraceful or dishonorable to Him, that which is unrighteous and not fitting of God's holiness and His perfection. We put it off and we dig as deep as possible and we put that off at the deepest possible level. And once we do that, once we begin to walk in that, we just dress accordingly. you heard the language of taking things off and dressing and putting things back on. So remember what we talked about last week. Set your minds on things above because ultimately we have been buried. You hear that language? We are just like Jesus. You and I miraculously, even though we're sitting here in chairs, breathing and looking around us, in some more powerful and ultimate sense, we've been buried. That which is broken in us, that which is sinful in us. God is united to Jesus. And when He sent Jesus to the cross and put Him in the tomb... He put your sin, your rebellion, your brokenness in there with Him. And when Jesus walked out spotless, a new creation resurrected, the old had passed away, and the new had come, so also He brought us with Him. Such that He even shares, as you saw in verse 4, His glory. We're so closely united to Jesus that you and I will be united with Him him and we'll actually share in His glory. So therefore, in verse 5, since you know that, since you know what God has done, here is what you do. So make that quick distinction in your mind. We talked about this the last couple of weeks. One of the ways we talk about the, the New Testament is we always want to distinguish between the imperative and the indicative, right? So the imperative, you fancy grammar nerds, right? That's, that's the commands. Those are the things you should do. You ought to do them. An imperative is do not or thou shalt or thou shalt not like the Big Ten, the Ten Commandments, all the way down to the law, even to the suggestions that are in these passages, there's some things you should do. Do them. Do them often. Do them with repetition. And shame on you if you don't. Feel guilt if you do not. Those are the things you ought to do. But those things are secondary to the indicative. That is, the statements of fact. The statements of things having already come to pass. They're the things that are imperative you should do, you ought to do, but they're also the things that are more important, and that is what God has already done. And so even as we focus in this particular passage here on some things that we ought to do and we ought to begin to practice, we never are distracted from that which God has already done. In the end, nothing can change what God has done through Jesus Christ. So you who are rebellious, you are full of sin, there's good news. There's nothing so terrible that you can do or that you have done that is greater than what Jesus has done to redeem you from it, to restore you, and to forgive you. There's nothing so bad that you can do. There's no, far, there's no distance that you can run so far that God cannot find you, catch you, and pull you back into His family. But for you who maybe aren't as rebellious, maybe you're more religious, There's also another challenge here that the same thing is true. There is nothing that you can do, no matter how good you think it is, that is better than what Jesus has done. So you who are rebellious, good news. There's there's nothing you can do that's awful, that's greater than what Jesus has done, which is perfect. But in that same sense, your righteousness, you who find yourself to be religious, you're a rule keeper, there's nothing you can do. As righteous as you might think that those things are, before God they're still filthy, they're disposable rags, And they are still smaller than the amazing thing that God has done for you in Jesus. Because we know this, because this is indicative, because this is settled, this is done once for all, then we turn our sights to what it looks like to walk in light of it. So, Therefore, since Jesus has done this thing, since He is preeminent, He's the firstborn of creation, He's been resurrected, and He's brought us with Him into this new creation, now we focus on what we ought to do in light of what Jesus has done. And He says with very strong language, Put to death. Okay, So you catch that imperative. This is the thing that you begin to do. It says, therefore, since this has happened, you put to death. It's a strong language. So whatever he's about to talk about, he's not like, hey, it would be good if you would maybe tone it down a bit. right? He doesn't say, hey, man, you really need to get this under control and do better in this area. Instead, he says, whatever it is that I'm about to talk to you about, you're going to put it to death. And all the pictures that come to your mind about that which is dead are true here. For once, all the zombie, all the the Dracula vampire, all this built into our culture for the last 10, 15 years has a purpose, right? Get it in your mind. If, if you're a walking dead person, great. The zombies, vampires, all of that. Dude, because any end, that's the purpose of those silly movies to make you fathom for just a minute or consider that things could be dead and come back to life but then what's the point you put them to death no really not just undead but dead and for the first time those pictures i hope will stick in your mind that's exactly the kind of attitude that paul wants these people to have toward things in their life that are ultimately robbing them of joy and so jesus has done something he has completed things for us and all the things that we do in light and we walk in His footsteps are simply a reflection and a response to what Jesus has already done. It's a reflex to the thing that God has done for us in Jesus. And so the things that we put to death here, we begin to put to death, but not completely. Because that ultimately is Jesus' job. So He says put to death these lists of sins. Choke them out. Stab them in a heart. Silver bullet. I don't know all the mythology that goes along with it but you dead dead buried dead done put to death You're going to do the best you can but ultimately it's been completed finally with Jesus He's done it And so that's why we talk about a couple of terms that you hear us talk about for the next couple of weeks and there was a guy by the name of Pelagius who came along and he came along and he said, "Hey, you need to believe in what Jesus has done." You need to walk in His footsteps and you need to turn to Him in faith because ultimately you can. He's like Stuart Smalley from Saturday Night Live. You're good enough. You need to turn from your sin toward God. You, in your heart, you need to see what's bad and you need to turn toward God. You need to do it. You need to take the step before, uh, toward God. You need to take the step toward Jesus. Unfortunately, that kind of language is nowhere to be found in the Bible. In fact, when we talk about steps being taken toward and away from God, all of the steps for which we are responsible, for example, we saw, um, we saw this earlier in this particular book, all the steps we take are away from God. Our hearts are darkened. They're turned away from God. We are dead in our trespasses. We ultimately are aliens. We are running away from God. The only thing that we're good for is to rebel from God, to see His law and not keep it. And instead of us taking a step toward God, instead of us being the seeker, there's an important point to to be made here before we talk about what we actually do, and that is that Jesus is the ultimate seeker. So when we're seeker-sensitive in the way that we worship, we're not sensitive to people seeking God, we're more sensitive to the seeker, that is Jesus who is seeking us. And what God has done for us in Jesus, we refer to as monergistic. All right, it's a fancy word, it's not going to help you anything, but if you remember what it means, it will. That mono, one, ergo, action. It is a, an action done by one person. God did it, God saved us. You didn't die on the cross for your sins, right? Jesus did. You didn't forgive yourself of your rebellion. That was what Jesus did. Last chapter we saw, it wasn't you that nailed the authority of sin to the cross and shaming the authority publicly as a spectacle for all to see. That wasn't you. That was Jesus. The only public spectacle that we make is of our own sin. It was Jesus that publicly redeemed us. And so when we talk about salvation, when we talk about coming to faith in Christ, we repeat over and over again that it is by God's grace alone that we believe in Jesus. And it is by faith alone that we have access, but not in such a way that we boast. Not in such a way that we have any reason to brag about our faith in Jesus. In fact, our faith in Jesus is not on what we have done or even what we believe. Our faith in Jesus is based on what He has accomplished for us. By Himself. Christ alone did it. And that guy by the name of Pelagius, kind of an important teacher, the church got together and called him a heretic. They got together and agreed, this guy is teaching something that's not in the Bible. It's not the teaching of Jesus. And they cast him out because what he was teaching was undermining the gospel. It was undermining this good news. Because after all, if your salvation, if your goodness and your righteousness is up to you, Friend, that's not good news. And if it was, then it's only as good as your last good decision. And if your standing before God is in your hands, and friend, that's not good news. You're going to mess it up. But instead, it's what God has done that sets us right before Jesus. God has done it by Himself. It's through Christ alone that we have salvation. And even faith in Christ, even opening, opening our eyes to understanding who Christ is, Paul tells the Corinthians, is a gift of God. It's an act of the Holy Spirit. No one can reject Christ unless there's something spiritual working against Him. But on the other hand, there's no one who can say that Jesus is Lord unless the Spirit is the one doing it. And so even the fact that you're here listening and not throwing tomatoes or chairs at me when I tell you how good Jesus is, is evidence of how God is good to us and His Spirit is opening us and opening our eyes to see Him. It's not by our own merit that we would see how good Jesus is. It is only by the power of the Holy Spirit. And even to tolerate the possibility that Jesus has done something for us is an act of the Spirit for which we give Him praise and we respond by giving Him gratitude, not by trying to take the credit. It's the indicative. This is the thing that God did. He did it without our permission. God wasn't waiting on your permission to send Jesus to the cross. Okay? He wasn't hoping that you might figure it out you might get your act together and then when you did, He's going to send His Son to make everything right. All of the sins that you and I have committed in our lifetime were done after Jesus died for them. Wrap your brain around that for the rest of your life. The victory over sin in your life was done, finished, paid for 2,000 years ago. And all that's left for us to do is to open our eyes to it and let its transforming power run over us. But then there's something that happens after that. Our salvation, our justification, our right standing before God is something set in stone by God Himself. Something that Jesus did not waiting for us to agree. Instead He did it so that we might come alongside and agree. But then there's another thing that takes place and it's called sanctification. It's the growing in holiness. Quite literally, to become holy, to become sanctified, to become holy like the sanctus real, the Holy Spirit, the holy way. We are coming alongside God. We are being more and more like Jesus. And this is something that He has invited us to participate in. So when we talk about salvation, justification, we use big words like monergistic. That is, God did it. He didn't ask us for permission. None of you were around when Jesus did it for you. Instead, He did it without your permission. He was going to save you and redeem you whether you liked it or not. But once we are redeemed, once our eyes have been opened to this, now what happens as we follow Jesus is what we call synergistic. Synergism, it's Synergy, the overused buzzword in corporate America right now, it's something we do together. And in this miraculous way, God is working to shape us to look like a new creation, to look like Jesus, piece by piece. And He's invited us to participate in it. Because now that He's given us a new heart, now that He's transformed us by saving us in Jesus, He's given us a new heart. And all that's left for us to do is to participate, to walk in that. We couldn't participate in good works. We couldn't participate in killing sin until Jesus killed it first and foremost. We couldn't participate in doing that which was right until God gave us a heart that could even determine what's right. And now we're invited to participate. So it's like the difference, and I'll I'll come back to this later maybe, but it's like the difference between a bar of soap and a dirt clod. Like to become clean as Jesus wants us to be clean like Him, compare the difference between a bar of soap and a dirt clod, right? And imagine taking a bar of soap and taking a dirt clod and dropping them both in the dirt. In a sense, they both become dirty because they're both in the dirt. But if you take one and you start to wash it off and you wash it off next to the other, you begin to see the difference. And Jesus, for us, has transformed our identity. Jesus, and this is going to be a crazy analogy that I'll probably have to pay for later, but Jesus, the cosmic bar of soap, right, the universal bar of soap that had cleansed us from all unrighteousness, has united us with himself such that now we've been given the same ministry of reconciliation. We're like tiny little Jesus-looking bars of soap. Problem is, Jesus is perfectly clean. We're not. We've been dropped in the dirt. And so for us, it's to wash off the dirt, similar to the way you wash off a bar of soap. Now that's interesting because uh, I guess there's a philosophical question: Can a bar of soap be dirty? I mean, in and of itself, it is clean, but can it be dirty? And that same question can be asked of you and me. Philosophically, now that we are in Christ, is there a sense in which we're even sinful? There's a sense in which we're now, as He calls us, saints. When's the last time you greeted your friends that way? Hey, you're a saint. There's a sense in which that is true. That is philosophically, epistemologically. That has actually happened. The truth of reality is that we are now like a bar of soap. We are clean. God has changed us, cleansed us from the inside out. What's left for us is to brush off the mess that will finally be done when Jesus comes back and joins us in His glory. But compare that to a dirt clod. You can wash off a dirt clod all you want. It will just be a dirt clod. It will never stop being dirty because that's what it is. It's dirt. It's made of dirt. But not a bar of soap. And so in the sense that we are to put to death that which is impure and unclean, we're joining in what God is doing. Because God has already transformed us. God has already made us from the inside out who we ought to be. And so we put to death the things that don't look like Jesus. So let's walk through those for just a few minutes here. So, He starts with a list, he says, put to death, therefore, knowing that, therefore, God has done all this stuff to to make you right, we set our hearts and minds upon him, we put to death, therefore, what is earthly in us. And he starts with two lists, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire and covetousness, which is idolatry. And then he gives us another list, and it says, you put away, in verse 8, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Notice what he did there. He just listed kind of two different categories of sin. The first one is sexual in nature, and the second is social in nature. Now, we have to assume that there was something going on in the Colossian church or something going on in this church that made him choose this particular set of sins. This is not an exhaustive list. This isn't like, these are all the bad possible things you can do. If you wanted to do that, you'd need a thicker book, right? That in of itself, you could write, you could write that book for the rest of your life. But instead, this seems to be something... That's particularly pertinent to this young church. Sins of a sexual nature seems to be seem to be like worth talking about in this church, and sins of a social nature tend to be, uh, seem to be something that ought to be talked about in this church. And so maybe some of this don't, maybe some of the things do and do not apply to us. But I want us to maybe s- step back and see how he describes this sin. And the first list he starts with the physical act, the sin, and he lists it by peeling off the labels until he gets to the heart of the matter, which is idolatry. So he starts with the, the physical sin, the sexual immorality. Under that is a, a, an impurity. Under that is a passion. Under that's evil desire. Under that's covetousness. But at the bottom is idolatry. There's layers to this sin. And then the next list, he does the opposite. He starts with the motivation, the things that that's the bottom, and then he gets to the thing that's most physical, most visible. He says you start with... Anger, at the root of the problem here is anger. And then above that, you pile on some wrath. Above that, malice, slander. And then the way that that plays out is obscene talk. So see the connection that he's making between what they have done physically and what they believe and what's broken along the way. So the problem really isn't sexual immorality. The problem under that's impurity. But the problem really isn't impurity. It's actually a passion. Under that's an evil desire, under that's a covetousness, but under that, at its deepest level, is an idolatry. The worship of something other than God. And the same thing is true of this other list. The problem isn't just that you slander. The problem isn't just that you speak things you ought not speak. The problem is that under that, there's malice and wrath, and at its deepest root, in your own heart, is anger. And so what he does for us is he gives us an example of what it looks like to mortify, to put to death these sins. And anyone who tries to put to death sin by just addressing that which is at the top is kind of like a person who tries to wash off a dirt clod. Ultimately, there's something deeper that has to be changed. And if God doesn't change it, then it doesn't matter how much you wash it off. It still by nature will be dirty. So let's walk through some of this. I just want to illustrate some of these things, maybe, and, and talk about the way that they play out in our own life. Because if this was pertinent to this church, it must be pertinent for us in some way, knowing that this isn't an exhaustive list of sin. But if you're going to put something to death, you have to cut off its lines of supply. It's futile. And in fact, it's self deceiving to bemoan our inability, or our, excuse me, our ability to resist the latest stages of temptation. If we ignore the earlier stages that have gone by completely unnoticed. And so the thing that was playing out here was a sexual immorality. So this, this word, this is, shows up throughout the New Testament. The word is porneia. It's a Greek word that means prostitute. porne, it just means prostitute. But as, it, as it's used here, porneia, it, the idea is anything that's sexual in nature that's outside of the bounds of marriage. And you're thinking, wow, that's archaic, Jonathan. No sex outside of marriage. That's crazy. I know. I get it. But this is exactly the picture that God has painted of what sex ought to look like and marriage is meant to be throughout the Bible. Not because the rules are important, but because God's relationship to us is important. Throughout throughout the entirety of the Bible, God paints a picture of His relationship to His people by using marriage as the analogy. That God has created his people for himself. He's winning them back to himself. But his people are like a cheating wife. In fact, there are prophets in the Old Testament that paint us, God's people, as prostitutes. We have literally played the whore. That we've run away from God. We are so unfaithful to God. And the greatest act of unfaithfulness we continue to do over and over again. In fact, the way that God wanted to illustrate that to his people so that they would understand the graphic nature of their rebellious sin before God is he told one prophet, hey, dude, you're going to be a prophet. You're going to speak for me. And he's like, cool, I'll do that. And he goes, hey, by the way, this is what you're going to do. You need to go marry a prostitute. So that my people will know what it's like and so that you can teach them what it's like to experience your rebellious nature from my perfect and holy nature, I need you to go and marry a prostitute. And this prophet's like, okay, I'll do that. Probably thinking, well, but she'll probably stop being a prostitute. After all, I'm a prophet. And in fact, over and over and over again, this prophet is married to this prostitute. She continues to fall into her pattern of promiscuity. She falls back into her prostitution. And each and every time, each and every time she cheats on him and runs away, God is there pointing out, that's exactly what you've done for me. And so marriage is a big deal. Marriage is a big deal, not because of all the reasons that I think our culture is telling us that it's a big deal. I would argue that tax benefits are not the most important thing about marriage. It's possible that marriage is a small, while imperfect, but small, perfect, or excuse me, small, small picture of God's perfect love for us. And in some imperfect way, when we see a group of people, or, or, or you see a couple and they marry and they're, and they're faithful to one another all the way to the point where they die, and they make a promise at the very beginning and they say, Look, I'm going to stay with you. And they shouldn't say for better or for worse. They should just be honest, right? Married people, they should just say for worse. Right, because that's as good as it gets. You go on a honeymoon, and that's the end of it. I don't know if you, maybe your marriage just stays in Mexico. Most marriages don't. So they should just say, hey, by the way, this is going to get worse. We're not going to get together on a weekly basis and dress you all up and have a banquet, okay? This is the only time, in fact, we're going to do this. If you make it to 10, 20, 50, we'll do it again. But otherwise, it's going to be downhill. If the honeymoon was a story of, hey, you get married, and you run off to, to Mexico, and you live on the beach for the rest of your life, That'd be something to say for better or worse. But we don't. And so we should just be honest. It's worse. And the commitment we're making is in light of that. We're saying, I know this is gonna, I'm gonna get uglier, I'm gonna gain weight, my hair is gonna turn color. That which was, that which was even somewhat attractive about me is going to go away. And yet, to death, there was part. One of us is gonna get Alzheimer's are not going to even know each other for the last 20 years of our life. One of us is going to fight cancer. And the other one's going to help the other one as they vomit repeatedly for months because of chemotherapy. One of us, one of us is going to be unfaithful. One of us, our hearts is going to wander. And we're going to wish we had a better looking, smarter spouse. One of us is going to wander. And yet, in spite of all of that, to death, till death to us part with you. And that's a picture of what it looks like to begin to understand God's love for us. God doesn't love us up until the point where we rebel against Him, cheat on Him, and then He abandons us. In fact, it's quite the opposite. God loved us while we were cheating on Him. God proposed to us, it tells us in the Bible, while we were His enemy. God said, I want to die for you while we were at our worst. And this picture of sex as a union, as an intimate connection between a married couple, is something that's meant to symbolize an intimate commitment. And when the intimacy physically gets ahead of the intimacy publicly or emotionally or intellectually, problems start to happen. And that's why sex is a big deal in this particular Passage. It's not just something big in our culture that we get excited about when it goes one way or the other, but apparently it was a big deal all along because there's really nothing more powerful than that. There is no greater power that God has given to the world than the power of sex. It literally is the ability to bring something to life. I mean, I'm still trying to figure that out, right? I'm still trying to understand that. And and that that mystery is revealed to me every time my, my daughters go, Daddy. And I'm like, really? you sure? And lo and behold, if you want to know the mystery of this, ask your parents, but that came about through sex. What an amazing gift that God gives to us. He's like, oh, by the way, it's going to be awesome, and then you're going to have awesome things that happen after it. It's crazy. That's the kind of God that we worship. But when you take away those commitments, you take away that emotional and intellectual connection, I would argue that sex is no longer beautiful, but then it's the most destructive power in all the world. From my perspective, there are no sins that leave deeper scars than sexual sins. And that same power that God has given us to bring life, I would argue is probably, even as we speak, on this interstate and around us, it's bringing death people will take innocent little children and sell them for their value only according to how much sex they can give. And there is no, I I can't see, I can't see a worse thing to do to a person than that. And the sins that we commit sexually, the Bible even tells us, are not outside our body, but they're a sin against our body. And so he starts with a powerful subject. Sexual immorality, it's a big deal. It's a conversation that's even taking place now. What is sex? Who has the right to have it? What do you do with it? And it's meant to be a picture of God's covenant relationship with us. That even in our infidelity and our unfaithfulness, God unites in a most intimate and powerful way and brings us new life. Even in our rebellion, God gives us new life. But don't just focus there because ultimately underneath that, there are layers, impurity. Passion, evil desires, and covetousness. And under all of those things is idolatry. And so, if we spend our time, this is where I hope you might find this helpful, in our culture today, only talking about sex because that's the topic of conversation, then we're missing out on God's ultimate goal for sex and union in the the first place. Did you catch that? There are layers much deeper purity of heart. Because after all, what's more destructive than when you take sex and then you use it for something that's impure? And evil, deci- evil desires. When you take something that brings life, like sex, and all of a sudden you, you, you morph it and you, you make it subject to an evil desire, well, now it's destructive. It's the most destructive thing that's ever happened. And under that is a covetousness, a desire for something that you don't deserve or, or that is not yours. A covetousness that you long for something that, You ought not have. And under that is idolatry. Not bowing down and worshiping like a golden monkey. Because that would be the probably most obscene way of thinking about this. But this idolatry simply as A.W. Tozer, one theologian says it, idolatry is just entertaining thoughts of God that are not worthy of Him. Anytime we believe something about God that's not true about Him, and what we're believing in is a self-made God. A God that we've made to please ourselves, which is, whether it's a golden calf, a golden monkey, or just improper beliefs about God, it's an idol. And you stack on top of that, a life built with improper thinking about God, then stuff starts breaking. So resist the temptation to engage in conversations about things going on right now, big, big hot topic, same-sex marriage, right? It's a big deal. People really pumped up about it. I'm going to give you just a word of advice. Resist the temptation to only talk about that. If you want to talk about marriage and sex, do what Paul does here. See if you can talk about what's really underneath. What do you believe about God? How are your beliefs about sex and marriage informed by what we know to be true about God. Because that conversation is futile until we look at what God has done for us and His faithfulness and intimacy with us in spite of our rebelliousness. And so when we fight sin, when we put it to death, when you and I lock arms to work with the Holy Spirit and put to death the sin in our life, the things that, hold us down to things that cause us pain, things that are destructive, when we do that, we do so always digging as deep as we possibly can. Always trying to look for the motivation, the cause. What is at the heart? Because the gospel, the good news, remember, isn't a new set of rules. It's not just a religious substitute for sinfulness. That's good. So, sexual sin, or any sin that, that might fit into this list. This is good news. I don't just stand up here and I go... Stop it. Quit that. Stop doing that again. Just quit it. And shame on you if you do it again. And you'll go, yes, that's great. Thanks. I'm going to remember that. When you will, for two days until you're back at it. Just as we saw last chapter, those rules, those religious practices, even though they're good, they have no power to really put to death our desires that are evil in, in our very heart. Instead, what we do is we preach the gospel that, yes, you sin, what ultimately needs to be known is that what you believe about God in your sin is not true. And when you choose to sin, when you choose to do what you want to do rather than what God wants to do, you're believing a lie. You're believing that God is not holy, but you're also believing that your way is better than God's. And the joy and pleasure that will come from choosing your way over God in that moment seems like it will be better. Seems like it will be more fun. Seems like you'll have more benefit. But the gospel needs to be preached to you at the deepest lover, level. That's not who God is. Oh, friend, God has created you and meant for you so much more than the desires of this world. And that's good news. Isn't that good news? Isn't that good news as we're living out that picture in marriage? Then, when the original benefits of marriage... You know, young, fun, oh, we love each other. When those original benefits start to wear off, isn't it good news that there is something deeper under the surface that binds us together? Isn't that incredibly good news? Isn't that bigger than just, you better quit that? Because that's what God is doing. God is doing something and He's accomplished something for us that changes our very heart. So conversely look how it's illustrated. It said so also put away anger wrath malice slander and obscene talk. Apply that same logic to that. Anyone ever try I mean just it's maybe just me and it's okay if it's just me. I'll just walk you through my own life, but anyone ever tried to stop cussing? Right? Anyone ever like, "Hey, you should stop saying that." And anyone ever found any success by just like telling yourself, "Stop doing that." Or any of you had any success by, you know, my parents never said a foul word in their life. I remember the very mild words they said when they were furious, but they weren't even that bad. And yet, about my sixth, seventh grade year, man, I was, I was, I was, like, a, I was like a Marine. I was like a sailor. And it wasn't because I didn't have someone telling me not to do it. But that, just saying stop doing that is it doesn't work. Instead, what you need to realize is that, as Jesus says, out of the overflow of your heart come the words of your mouth. I overheard a guy, we were in a pickup basketball game, church league, of course, because that's when the worst things in the world ever happened. A church league basketball game, some dudes were, he was getting into it, and a dude cussed. And the pastor was on the church league team, and I don't know if you know this, and some of you respect me in this way, and you show me this courtesy, but uh, curse words have triple point value when you curse in front of a pastor, right? God holds them three times against you when you curse in front of a pastor. So don't do it. Because his ears are virgin ears and he hasn't heard anything like that. So the guy, he curses in the middle of the church league game because that's what church league games bring. And, and he realizes he did in front of the pastor. He realized he was going to have triple point value. And he looked at the pastor and he goes, I'm sorry, it slipped. And the pastor, not missing a beat, he goes, no, it didn't. And the dude's like, stopped, And he's like, well, wait a minute, And it slipped. It it just slipped out. And he goes, no, it's not. He goes, that's a habit. That word came from deep inside of you. And just, you know, took off again. and back back into the game. Now, that guy didn't get it. It went right over his head. It went in one ear and out the other. But I happened to be listening when he said it. And it hit me square in the heart. You know why you say things that are evil? Because they pour out of the evil in your heart. You want to change the way you talk? change what you believe. Instead of praying that God would help you to stop talking in a certain way, pray that God would change your heart, that you would be so filled with compassionate heart, you'd be so filled with kindness, humility and meekness and patience that those kinds of words would never come out. So if you want to attack sin, go to the root. Go to what's underneath. I mean, it's one thing to pray, God help me stop smoking. But it's another thing to pray, God, plant in me a desire for something so great that I don't even have time to want to smoke. Instead of, hey, stop me from just doing this thing. What if we pray, God, change me so that my actions begin to change? Because the gospel isn't that you get a new set of rules to obey. The gospel is that God has already changed your heart and given you a heart that now is inclined toward following his rules. Yes, we feel shame, but we could never go back. And so when we fight sin, when we put sin to death in our own life, when we call one another out, we don't do so only talking about the thing on the surface. We always ask, like, hey, what's going on? What's happening? What really is under the surface here? Instead of being offended and taking it personally, we just stop and go, hey, man, where'd that come from? It's how we address sexual sin. It's how we address obscene talk. And we say, instead of stop doing that, we go, whoa, 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 whoa. What's going on? Where does that come from? So let me just in the next couple minutes kind of illustrate how this has played out in my life. Because ultimately we put off our old self. Next week we'll talk about what we put on as a replacement. And ultimately Jesus has done something in verse 11 that is not just for Greeks and Jews. Not for just different religions. It's not even for circumcised and uncircumcised people. It's not, whether or not that's not a big deal. Barbarian or Scythian, that's a That's a pun, in fact. It's an onomatopoeia toward different people from different countries, born from different backgrounds. It's not about where you're born or where you come from. It's not even, and we'll talk about this in depth next week, it's not even about whether or not you're a slave or free. The gospel, apparently, is even more important than whether or not you are enslaved. That which Jesus has done for you is, in fact, more important and deeper than whether you are a slave owner or a slave yourself. But instead, verse 11, Christ is all and in all. And we put on that which is like him, and we carefully put off that which is not. So let me walk you through just a just way that this is showing up, okay? And I'm, I'm gonna I wanna lead here because the kind of culture that we want to create is not a culture where we're constantly looking for sin in one another's life. But we're like, oh, you did that, I saw you do that, you need to put that to death. Instead, the kind of culture we want to get excited about is we're constantly looking for places to preach the gospel. And so when we see one another sin, instead of going, that's wrong, get out of here, we go, hey, 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 I want you to hear some good news. I want you to hear the good news that you don't have to do that, that there's more to life than just that. And let me share with you and hopefully lead in repentance in front of you. And let me lead by example by confessing that. I don't want to go too far because I don't want you to not like me, but here we go. This is kind of how it's played out in my own life. When I was a a young person, um, I was in elementary school. One of my best friends talking about taking things and putting them to death, obscene talk that ultimately comes from anger. That's um, just an example, I, when I was a, a young person in elementary school, my best friend was a guy by the name of Terrence. Terrence's dad was a pastor. Um, my dad was a pastor, but his dad was a pastor at an African-American, predominantly African-American church. My dad was a pastor at a predominantly white church. We were best friends. We'd always love hanging out on Saturday nights because we could go to each other's churches. We liked going to go into his because the worship was a lot more fun, but we liked also go into mine because it was a lot shorter, right? So so it was just, we just knew this is what we were going to get. And one of my best friends, and um, Terrence, African-American dude, um, one of my, he's my best friend, hanging around with us. And, and, and Terrence used a word, I won't say it, it's a word that we call, in our culture, if you've got to Google it, great, or ask your parents, the N-word, okay? And Terrence and my other buddies used that word. And I still, some me was like, I don't think I'm allowed to use that word. And Terrence paid me the highest compliment that, that he could have paid me. And he goes, hey, dude, we're friends, man, we're friends. You know, you've come to church with me, we're friends. If you want to, when you're around us, you can use the N-word too. I didn't realize that was a high compliment. It was like, you can use that word. And, now, I'm not an idiot. I didn't do it, okay? I'm not, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit mindless, but I'm not completely, I'm not a complete moron. I was like, I even I knew, like, no, nah, I, I appreciate that. I don't think so. So here's what I did. I went home and my brother and I were jawing back and forth and the privacy of our own bedroom. And then I decided to bring that one out. And my mom, on the other side of the house, because this is what moms have the gift to do, heard it. And, I, man, I hear the, Right? I, I could hear the steps coming. I was like, oh, man, this is, this is going to be bad. Get back from the door. And my mom grounded me from everything for two weeks. I mean everything. For two weeks, because I used that word. And... She made me over the course of two weeks, while I was grounded, study the history of that word. She made me, she she made me do research. This is the kind, and I had to tell her, hey, can you want to go out? You want to go, you want to go play? No, I can't, I'm grounded. Why? You don't want to (laughs) know. And she made me study the history of that word and the history of its use. From Webster's dictionary meaning, what it really means, and then from how that word began to represent a movement. And here's what I found out: that underneath that word. Not just that it's obscene, but underneath that word, you know what was built in? Slander. Underneath that word was a history of slander. It was a history of malice, a history of hate. And underneath that wrath was a history of anger. And underneath that was a belief about God that is not true. There is neither slave nor free. Christ is all. There's no barbarian. There's no Greek or Jew. There's none of those things. Christ is all. So guess what word I never use and will never use again? Because someone had the courage to show me that underneath that, there's something evil. And instead of ever letting that word come out, I don't just wake up in the morning and go like, hey, don't do that. Instead, what I say, God, shape my heart today such that I'm so full of love that the only things that pour out of my mouth are compassion and kindness. I haven't got to figure it figured out. Fast forward to... Um, First couple of months, my wife and I were dating. My wife, she was my girlfriend. We're hanging out. We started flirting together, and we started like flirting by like calling each other bad names. And she was like, you, you know, just silly names, like you're silly, and then you're stupid. Like it was like it was like three year olds. Um, f- this is where our relationship was at the time. We 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 were just flirting, and then it was like you're a scumbag, and I'm like you're a dirt bag, and it was just she was just like ha ha ha. ha I don't know. <laughs> so you see where this is going? It just gets worse. And I, with a smile on my face, I, uh, I did it. I pulled out, I pulled out the B word, with a smile on my face, jokingly. And this girl that I, I mean, silly. I'm not silly, but this, this is real. This girl that I love, like, started to cry, and and tears began to come down her face. And I was like, oh, oh my. And I'm freaking now, cause I'm like, oh no, this is. I just, I don't know what I just did. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. And here's here's what I do from now on. I don't wake up in the morning and go, please don't call your wife names today. I've never used that word again. I I just, I won't. I put it off. I put it to death. And instead I wake up in the morning and I go, God, fill me with such compassion for my wife. And I haven't got this all figured out just yet. But what if, God, you would fill me with such compassion that only kindness, only encouragement would come out of my mouth? And so here, I'm not there yet. I don't do that anymore. But you know what I do? That I'm praying that God would put to death. I don't ever want to say another harsh word to her again. Not just not obscene things, but I want God to change my heart so much that I love her, and I wouldn't even think about joking about something like that. And so I invite you. I don't know what it is for you. It may not be the things you say. It may be the actions you do behind closed doors. But let's get excited about preaching the gospel to those places at its deepest level Such that we start to tear down the things that ultimately will destroy us and have no ability to give us life. Let's dig under the surface. Let's not settle for just shallow conversations. Instead, let's look for the places in our lives where we're not believing about God rightly. There is no sin. This is why this is the example I want to set, even by telling you these things, and I'm I'm completely embarrassed about what I just told you. I'm fully embarrassed. But here's the good news, and this is where I need to even preach the gospel to myself. There is no sin that a pastor can can confess that Jesus has not already died to save him from. You get that? There is no sin that any of us can confess that Jesus hasn't already publicly made a mockery of. There's no sin that could come to the surface that Jesus hasn't already paid for. There isn't anything that you and I should bring to the surface with shame or fear. We can do so lovingly and knowing that, man, Jesus has already paid for this. But that's if we don't settle for only talking about the surface. Christ is in all and in all. And so just like chosen people, let's put off these things and put on something new. Let's see that sin goes to the depths of our own heart, and let's preach the gospel to our hearts. Let's see that our idolatry, our believing something about God which is untrue, affects the way that we live. And when we begin to root out that sin, We won't just be weed pullers, but we'll start to be farmers who actually plant things in place of those weeds. Let's put those things to death. Let's dress accordingly. Taking off which is bad and putting on that which is good. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for how good you are. Uh, We thank you for how merciful you are. Um, We thank you that there is no sin that we can confess that you've not already atoned for. We thank you that there is no place that you haven't already given us mercy. We thank you that the good news um, that you have loved us is not just something that changes our sets of rules and expectations, but it's something that changes our hearts and our identity. So we want to respond accordingly. God, give us opportunities in the days to come to have awkward, painful, possibly, conversations, knowing that we may need to tell one another the things that we don't want to tell. We we want to keep them a secret. But God, give me the courage to confess that which is broken in me, knowing that you've already died to repair it. Give me the courage to confess uh, what is rebellious in me, knowing that you've already run me down, to win me back to yourself. So right now, would you begin the painful process of opening our eyes to the things in our lives we need to put off? For some of us, it may be obvious. There's there's a habit, there's something that, that is just drawing us away from you. Would you reveal that to us? And instead of Letting us slip into the pattern of just wanting to change our actions. God, would you, right now, would you uh, begin to show us that the deeper root of that is that we haven't believed that you're a good God who forgives and is merciful. You're a good God who wants better for us. For some of us, that sin may not be so obvious. So would you begin the painful process of opening our eyes to it, even if it goes deep, even if it's something that's secret, even if it's something that we've denied? We've run from for years, and in those places, would you help us to put off that which is unholy all the way to the root, so that we can speak the gospel—the good news—that you have done something to make that right, God. As we respond to this, uh, let us let us give faithfully, but let us also worship wholeheartedly, thanking you that that you alone are worthy, that you are unchanging, despite our sin and unfaithfulness. You have uh, wanted to make us right so we boldly confess those sins so that you can make them right and give us new life in Jesus Christ. We thank you for this in Jesus' name, amen.